I want to wish you a good morning and a welcome. I'm glad that you are here. I love this time when we get to gather as God's people on Sunday morning to worship and to fellowship and to encourage each other in the life of faith. And I want to welcome those who are not able to be here physically with us this morning, but who are joining us online. And we're glad that you are connecting with us that way. I want to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Joshua chapter 3, and if you don't have a Bible, you can find one on the rack in the row ahead of you there. We've got some Bibles placed there. And we're in the midst of a series of sermons called Courage During Uncertain Times. This morning's message is about living by faith versus living by sight. And this message is called, Can You Believe What You See? If you reach inside your bulletin, you'll find a sermon outline that you can use to follow along, and I hope that you will use that and jot down whatever it is that the Holy Spirit might bring to your mind as we work our way through the Bible this morning. And I'd like to take a minute now and pray and ask God to guide our time together in the Scriptures. Our Father, we thank you so much for revealing yourself to us through, through the Bible. And this is a moment when, in a very real sense, we get to sit at your feet and learn from you and help us to understand what a great privilege that is. I pray that you would teach us this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who inspired the words of Scripture, the Holy Spirit who lives within each of us as followers of Jesus. May that same Spirit, Father, illuminate our minds and our hearts so that we might grow in our understanding of what it means to live by faith more than to live by sight. So we commit this time to you now and to your purposes, and we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the most profound spiritual experiences my wife Julie and I ever had occurred shortly before we moved to Oregon 11 and a half years ago. And at that time, we both were serving on the ministry staff of a large church in Southern California. And we had joined that church at a time when we had different careers. I was a businessman, and Julie was a teacher. But over an extended period, the leaders in that church urged each of us to leave our marketplace careers and to enter the ministry. And so I became a teaching pastor on the staff of that church, and Julie ran our women's ministry. We both found great fulfillment in that work, and we loved our church. We were there for more than two decades and made many deep friendships. Our three children were raised there, grew from infancy to adulthood. And it was through the ministry of that church that our kids fell in love with Jesus and made the decision to be baptized. So as you might imagine, our roots were deeply planted in that place. And quite frankly, we thought we would never leave. But God had other plans. Over a period of several months as I was praying, there was a thought that kept get, getting planted in my head, and the thought was this, your time here is coming to an end. And I couldn't believe it, and I didn't want to believe it, so I kept ignoring it, but the thought would not go away. I finally mentioned it to Julie, and she said that same thought had been running through her head also for months. 
And then we realized it wasn't a coincidence, so we had to start praying about it together. And as we prayed, God made His will known, but it got a little bit weird. Because God made it clear, you're done at this church. But I want you to resign before you have another job lined up. And I want you to take a season apart from ministry and wait on me. And as you wait, I will show you the next step. Now, I, I don't know how you'd react to that. But from our perspective, that was really stupid. <laughs> it was illogical. It was foolish. And it was even irresponsible. And yet, the more that we prayed the more it became abundantly clear that this was exactly what our Heavenly Father wanted us to do. We came to a point when we realized we faced an incredible choice. Would we trust in what we could see or would we trust in the very clear direction we were getting from God? Well, we made the choice, the very difficult choice, to trust God. And it was difficult because by doing what he asked, we entered into a season of great uncertainty. And it was a season that tested our faith for 15 long months. And it was a season that ended when God brought us to a new ministry here in Oregon in 2010. So why did God take us through that time? He did it because our Father wanted to teach us a powerful lesson. A lesson that continues to shape our lives today. Sometimes, as followers of Jesus, we cannot believe what we see. Instead, we must believe what God tells us. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. And that's a lesson God wants all of his children to learn. And our Bible passage today is a vivid story where we see this principle in action. God has Joshua leading this huge community of Israelites out of the wilderness into the promised land, and he said, now you're going to lead them across the Jordan River and actually start to step, set foot into the promised land. And yet the river at that time is at flood stage, and there is no visible safe way to cross. Yet God says, get across. So Joshua faces a choice. Will he believe what he sees? Or will he have the courage to believe what God says? Joshua chooses to trust God. And so before he even fully understands God's plans, he boldly tells the people, you better get prepared because God is about to do something amazing. Let's take a look and see how this story unfolds. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. 
At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you've not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. That ark represents the presence of God, and by having that ark move in front of them, they know that God is there. Now, here's what's really interesting about what is, about what is taking place. Crossing the Jordan River normally is not a problem. There are shallow areas in the river called fords where people safely can wade across. As we saw last week in chapter 2, some spies were sent out by Joshua to go across the river into Jericho. Well, that's how they got across. They used one of the fords. But time has passed since that day because God was not in a hurry. God often isn't in a hurry. And because God waited, now the Jordan is at flood stage. The fords would still be usable, but they'd be very dangerous. And if you were a cautious and lightly packed traveler, you probably could get across. But that doesn't apply to the Israelites. This community at this time consists of more than one million people. Men, women, and children. Plus, everything they own. So accompanying them, there's flocks of sheep and herds of goats, plus carts full of their personal belongings, plus the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God, plus all of the furnishings for the tabernacle, which is their portable temple. There's no way they can wade across a deep ford with all that stuff. So how will God get them to the other side? Joshua, as of yet, has no clear idea. And yet he moves the Israelites about nine miles from their camp in Shittim to the very banks of the Jordan so they'll be ready to cross over. You see, despite the lack of full information from God, Joshua continues to trust that God knows what he's doing. And oh, I wish you and I could be more like that to trust God and move ahead based on His promises even when we don't have full understanding. That's living by faith, not by sight. Now, while Joshua doesn't yet know all the specifics, he does realize that the only way they will cross is if God does something powerful. So he tells the people to get ready to see God work. He wants them to be prepared, to be filled with wonder as they see God display His power on their behalf. He wants them to be ready to participate in a holy experience with the Creator of heaven and earth, so He tells them to consecrate themselves. That's not a word that we typically use. So what is consecration? It means to clean and purify yourself. Very specifically, for most of these people, it means take a bath and wash your clothes. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us, 
But when you're living in the wilderness, bathing and doing the laundry is not a daily experience. But here's the thing, when you take those physical acts and you do them for the purpose of consecration, then they take on a spiritual meaning. So as the people clean their bodies and clean their apparel, they also are praying to clean away the emotional and spiritual dirt of daily life. They are washing themselves so they can get more fully aligned with God. Here's a way maybe to help us understand that because something very similar takes place in baptism. When you and I get baptized, we do far more than just get wet. As we are immersed, God forgives us of our sins. He cleanses us. He cleanses our conscience. You see, baptism is a physical act with very deep spiritual meaning and implications. And that's what this act of consecration is for the Jewish people. They're preparing their minds and their hearts and their souls so they'll be able to fully appreciate all that God is about to do for them. Preparation. Preparing for what God's going to do. I was pondering that during the week and it occurs to me that sometimes you and I might benefit by doing a bit more spiritual preparation in our own lives. I have a sense that sometimes we don't fully appreciate all that God does on our behalf because we've not prepared ourselves to be looking for Him. I think sometimes in our busy lives, we miss seeing the work that He does on our behalf. Here's what I find, though. When I, when I take the time to read the Bible, spend time in prayer, and fellowship with other believers, and engage in worship, then my mind and my heart are so much more in tune with God. And then as I go through my day, I'm far better prepared to see where God is at work. I'm better prepared to appreciate all of the ways, both big and small, that God demonstrates His care for me. I'm better prepared to be amazed at who God is and all that He does in our world. I do not want to take God for granted. I want to be amazed more consistently, and I'll bet you do too. And I think that can, can happen if we consistently take time to prepare ourselves spiritually so that we can see God at work in us and around us and through us. I think that's important in every season of life, to be able to see what God's doing. But I think it's particularly important when we're living in a season of uncertainty. That's when we need to see God at work more than ever. It's true for us, and it certainly was true for the Israelites. Oh, they need to be able to see God at work in this moment because He's leading them into an unknown territory and a whole array of unfamiliar experiences and they need to believe that God truly is living among them. And Joshua goes on to say that's exactly why God will do this miracle. Look what comes next. 
The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel so that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. So note that Joshua now is saying, I'm speaking to you, but I'm telling you what God told me to say. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know, not think, not hope, you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. That's almost like a little aside. We're going to hear more about them next week. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Okay, so Joshua now has been told by God what to say to the people, and based on that, he's got at least some idea of what God is up to. Because if the priests are going to be able to walk out and stand in the middle of the Jordan River on dry ground, no less, then it means that God somehow will part the river. He's going to carve away for them through the riverbed. And, and here's what's really powerful about this. When God said to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, boy, did he mean that literally. God parted the Red Sea for Moses to lead the Israelites through. And God now will part the Jordan for Joshua to lead the Israelites through. I think that's pretty amazing that God's going to do this kind of incredible miracle a second time. And Joshua has incredible confidence in God. And based on that confidence, he tells the Israelites what to expect. And the most significant thing that lies in their future is actually not the crossing of the Jordan. The most significant thing is going into the promised land and defeating their enemies so they can inherit this land which God has said, I'm giving to you. And that's the goal. So God wants them to know that he will drive out their enemies and help them be victorious. And to prove that he will do amazing things for them in battle, he now will lead them across the river in an amazing way. Here's my paraphrase of this. I think God is saying to the people through Joshua, don't believe what you see. Every foe you face in battle, even many of these armies that are bigger and stronger than yours, they're going to be defeated if you trust me and do things my way. And as an aside, that's going to be a challenge because some of God's ways of fighting battles is really odd. <laughs> we'll see some of those. But God is saying, to prove that you can trust me in battle, I will get you across the flooded Jordan when you can't see any human way to get to the other side. 
So crossing the Jordan will be this amazing miracle and participating in it will require the Israelites to walk by faith, not by sight. And yet as amazing as this miracle is, it's not an end unto itself. It supports a larger purpose. Getting across the river is to give the Israelites the faith they need to inherit the land and to continue to trust God during the difficult days that lie ahead. And and what is true here with this miracle is true for virtually every miracle in the Bible. Miracles are performed in support of a larger purpose. Jesus did some amazing miracles of healing, but he didn't do them just to be nice. Jesus did the miracles to get people's attention and to prove that he had the authority to forgive sin because he was the Messiah. God gave the apostles the ability to perform miracles so people would know that those apostles had been with Jesus and were proclaiming God's truth. God does miracles to reveal who he is and have us embrace his larger purposes. He does miracles both big and small so we will know he is living among us. And this miracle that God is about to do is absolutely huge. And there's several reasons why. And the first thing I want us to see is that this is a miracle that God did not even need to do at all. I'd like us to take a look at this map. Okay, so let me orient you. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. Egypt is down over here where the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. And the Israelites have spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness down here below Negev and Edom, okay? So God wants to take them in over here. That's the promised land. Well, if you're wandering around down over here, what is the most simple and direct way to get to the promised land? Straight up this way. Look what God does. He doesn't go by the most direct route. He takes them around the backside of the Dead Sea all the way up here, and they cross the Jordan River up by Gilgal, and then they're going to go down and attack Jericho. Now, why would God do that? Well, one reason is that it will cement in the mind of the Israelites that Joshua is, in fact, a leader in the mold of Moses, that God is with Joshua the way he was with Moses. It will give people courage in their leader. There's another reason. The Israelites have been wandering, and an entire generation of people have died off. There's only two men left, Joshua and a man named Caleb, who are still alive, who actually walked through the Red Sea with Moses. And I believe God wants this current generation to have their own water-crossing miracle. So that for them, that kind of miracle isn't history, but it's current events. It's to show them that God is with them, just like he was with the earlier generation. There's another piece to this that I think has great spiritual meaning. These two water crossings serve as spiritual bookends in the history of Israel. The parting of the Red Sea represents the end of their season of captivity in Egypt. And the parting of the Jordan represents the start of a new season as they enter the promised land. And those two water crossings are a powerful metaphor for baptism. 
When the Israelites cross the Red Sea, what are they doing? They're dying to their old way of life. They're dying to slavery in Egypt. And when they cross the Jordan, what are they doing? They're entering the promised land. They are beginning a brand new life. When we're baptized, God does the same thing with us. He does spiritually with us what he did physically with Israel. Because God loves to rescue people from their past and give them a fresh start. And he does it with us when we repent and we're baptized and we are raised to walk in newness of life. And that's what he is doing with Israel. So God takes our ancestors out of their way by an illogical route to do a specific miracle filled with spiritual meaning so they will better understand who he is and what he wants to do for the people that he loves. I hope you find that amazing and I hope you find that encouraging. I sure do. And when I realize that this is who God is, that it intensifies my desire to trust him more. And yet, that's not all. To better understand exactly what this miracle will involve, I'd like us to look at a couple of pictures. This is the Jordan, a picture of the Jordan River Valley. It's from a more contemporary area, but you can see how the river is wending its way through. You can see the wide, wide expanse of the floodplain there. But the thing to notice is it's not level ground. Getting down to the river requires going down an incline. And in Joshua's day, it was at least 20 feet down to the riverbed from the surrounding hills, sometimes even more. So just getting all their loaded gear down to the riverbed was a bit of a challenge, okay? It was not an easy thing. And then in flood stage, the river would overflow its banks, and it would, oh, can you go back one second? Okay. At flood stage, it fills that entire canyon there. And the volume of water doubles or triples, or quadruples. The normal depth is like five to 10 feet, it's maybe 50 to 100 feet wide, and at flood stage, I don't even know how wide that is, but it is really deep. And then if Cindy, if we could have that next slide, this is a very modern day photo of the Jordan River at flood stage. And you can see there's a ton of water, it's moving fast, and there are rapids, and there are shoals, and there are side channels, and everything is just swollen, swollen with runoff. And here's the point, as our spiritual ancestors stand on that bluff and look down at that river, based on what they see, the task ahead is impossible. Without God's miraculous intervention, there simply is no way to get this entire community safely to the other side with their belongings. And what we see from the timetable of Scripture and what we see from the map is that God planned it this way. God brought them to this place at this time deliberately because the task was impossible. It's a reminder that a loving father doesn't always make things easy for his children, otherwise they're never gonna grow up. And in the same way, the Heavenly Father sometimes leads you and I into difficult situations sometimes into impossible situations. So we will mature and learn to live by faith, not by sight. So we can learn to trust God's words more than our circumstances. So we can believe 
that the living God is among us. And when we truly believe this, then we will not yield to doubt. We can walk forward in faith even when it seems as if God is taking a long time to fulfill His promises. And that's what we see in the final part of this chapter. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Okay, so back in verses 11 to 13... Joshua told the priests carrying the ark to walk at the head of this massive procession because he wanted the people to see that God himself is leading the way. And he told everyone that when the priests got to the river, the water would stop flowing. So if you're one of the priests, here's the message. Don't believe what you see. You must ignore the floodwaters because they'll disappear, but not until you reach the river. You must walk toward the river by faith. Now, how hard would that be to do? Could you or I walk directly toward a raging flood, believing it somehow is going to go away the minute our feet hit the water? You see, from a human perspective, to walk toward a raging flood isn't logical. In this case, though, to walk toward a flood is a courageous statement of faith. It's an act that says, I believe the living God is among us. Uh, imagine, imagine that you're one of the priests carrying the ark. There's four of you, got this massive box full of the, of the Ten Commandments and other holy objects. There's four of you. You got poles, two on each side. You got this thing on your shoulder. And lucky you, you're one of the priests at the front. And you head down that rocky hillside carrying this big heavy box, and you look ahead, and there's the flood, and you keep walking, and there's the flood, and the water isn't going away yet, and you keep walking, and the flood isn't going away yet. And you take that last final step, and as your foot hits the water, whoosh, it's gone. It's gone. There's no standing water on the riverbed. And you walk out and stand in the middle of the river on dry ground. I mean, wouldn't that be an incredible, incredible moment? And, and here's what I think. I think those priests being human, I think they probably did have some doubts. I think they probably did have some anxiety. But whatever they felt, they kept walking in faith. You see, the issue, issue isn't what we feel. 
It's what we do. It's how we live. And when we keep walking based on a promise of God, we show God that we trust Him. We show God that we won't yield to whatever doubt we might feel. When we keep walking toward an objective that defies what we see, we're saying to God, I believe you will keep your word. And He does. You see, when we follow God's lead faithfully, He will show up. The hard thing is that sometimes He doesn't show up early. And why is that? Because He wants us to grow in faith. And we don't grow in faith when life is easy. Let's face it. If the minute Joshua said to the priest, time to go, and they hoisted up the ark, and as they started walking, the flood was immediately gone, oh man, that would have been a whole lot easier. And it would have required a whole lot less faith. So as God carries out His plans in your life and in mine, He often waits until the last minute. So we will learn to trust Him more. There's a great phrase that sums this up. God is seldom early and never late. And therefore, we can keep walking toward God's objectives and we can refuse to yield to doubt. That's what these priests did and it's what enabled them to display such courageous faith. And because of their faith, they had the opportunity to experience God's power in a much more amazing way. Think about how their own relationship with God was changed from that moment. They'd been at the top of the hill and the water had cleared away. That would have been, ooh, pretty cool, God. But when they've had to walk down the whole hillside, waiting, 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 and then they watch God remove that water the minute their feet touch it, oh my goodness, would that energize their faith. When we walk with God, even as He delays, we get a chance to participate with God in some amazing, amazing things. Beyond all that we've seen so far, there's a couple other aspects of this miracle that are very amazing. Based on the locations mentioned in verse 16, we know that the water stopped about 17 miles upstream and the downstream flow was cut off. But, but think about this. Think about how just sort of the natural way that water works, if God had just stopped up the river 17 miles upstream, it would have taken a long time for 17 miles of floodwaters to gradually dissipate. They all had, would have to flow down the stream and clear out before the Israelites. They would have had to wait a while for that river to empty. They would have watched the level slowly, slowly drop. But that's not what happened. The water dropped immediately. And so I have this picture in my head of God watching those priests, and right before they get there, God reaches down with his hands, and of course he doesn't have hands, but you know, he reaches down and just goes, whoosh, and divides the river, and pushes water upstream 17 miles, and stops the downflow part, pushes all that down. It's an amazing miracle. It happened instantaneously, and that's why the priest could walk out and stand in the middle of the Jordan on dry ground. The second piece of this is that even though the Israelite crowd is huge, God did not need to clear 17 miles of river to get his people across. 
which means he did more than was necessary, which means this was a lavish miracle. God wanted to demonstrate his care in an overwhelming way because our God loves his children extravagantly. And when we live by faith and not by sight, and when we believe that God lives among us, and when we make the choice not to yield to doubt, then we make ourselves available to experience his lavish and overwhelming love in amazing, amazing ways. Now, the odds are good that you and I probably will never participate in a miracle quite like that one. But we can, like the Israelites, choose to trust God more than what we see in the circumstances of life. And when we do, God can do amazing things in our lives. He can do miracles, perhaps big or perhaps small, Miracles that change us and even change the trajectory of our lives. That's the story of Jonah Jameson. Jonah grew up in a very poor family. He was the youngest of five children. His parents were faithful followers of Jesus, but of very limited means. Jonah's dad had no education and worked as a farm laborer, and his mom watched over the kids and over the house. And Jonah's siblings loved farm work and they hated to study, so they all barely graduated high school. Jonah, though, was different. He was blessed with a fine mind and a love of learning. And he was an avid reader and he did well in school. And as he prayed about his future, God gave him a dream. A dream to go to college, to become a college professor and to spend his life in the training of young minds. No one in Jonah's family ever had done anything like that. Jonah did not know anyone from their poor community who ever had done anything like that. So he had no role model to follow and no idea of how a dream like that ever could become a reality. And yet as he prayed, he continued to believe that this was what God wanted for his life. So he talked to his dad about it, and here's what his dad told his son wise advice. Joni, you know we can't afford to send you to college, but if this dream is from God, then it will come to pass. So don't be limited by what you can see. Never forget that God led our spiritual ancestors across the flooded Jordan River. So pray, have faith, let God show you one step at a time, and with each step you take, see what God might do. So Jonah studied hard and was accepted into a four-year university. He took menial jobs and saved his money, and he earned enough to pay for his first year. But after completing his freshman year and he went home for the summer, he didn't know if he would have the finances to return for his sophomore year. But he did. Each year of school, he had to ignore what he could see and trust God in the face of an uncertain future because he never knew. He never knew where the money for the next year would come from. And every year the money showed up through his hard work, through scholarships, through grants, and sometimes through unexpected gifts. God was faithful as Jonah simply took one year at a time. And he finished his bachelor's degree 
and then his master's degree, then he earned his PhD. 11 years of schooling, and every year for Jonah was a huge step of faith. And here's what's really fascinating. If you ask Jonah about that 11-year journey, he would describe it this way. In my life, that was an unfolding 11-year miracle. It's a miracle, Jonah says, that transformed the trajectory of my life. And today, he's a tenured professor of economics at a prestigious university. He's a faithful follower of Jesus. He's molding and shaping the lives of students in all kinds of ways, living out his faith in the way God has called him to live out his faith, using the gifts given to him by his loving Heavenly Father. And it's happening because Jonah had the courage to trust God. He chose to believe in the dream God gave him more than in what he could see. He had the courage to walk by faith, not by sight. I find myself wondering, how might God be working this out in your life? Is there perhaps a step of faith that God might be urging you to take? And if so, could you be holding back because you just can't see how things will work out? Whenever we face situations like that, we can turn to this story of Joshua and the Israelites, and we can let this story inspire us to press on. Because the reality is God is eager to do amazing things in your life and in mine when we learn to trust Him more than what we can see. And my prayer is that we, Thurston Christian Church, would be known in our community as a community of believers where the living God is at work because we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. Let's pray. Father, I marvel at the courageous faith of Joshua and at the priests who carried the ark into the river and our spiritual ancestors who, who chose to ignore what they could see, believing that you could in fact part the floodwaters of the Jordan. It's an amazing story. And when we face our own unfamiliar and difficult circumstances, please help us to be inspired by these examples of courageous faith. Help us learn to trust you more. Help us learn to live by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.